Hi, this is Yolanda. I'm sharing with you the memoirs of President Joseph Smith III, 1832 to 1914. And we're currently on page 332 of chapter 33. And um, I ask you to bear with me as sometimes I stumble over some of the words, but I'm thoroughly enjoying the words of Joseph Smith III and I invite you to join me to listen. This heading is Conference of 1896. A week after this interview with Spencer et al, I returned home and in another week was on my way to Kirtland. A cold north wind was blowing and snow was flying as we reached Cleveland and many of us were thoroughly chilled while waiting for cars to take us to the hotel. The next day we went to Kirtland where I believe I had a room at the hotel. The weather continued very inclement and when Brother Blair arrived from St. Louis he found it very different from what he had experienced there. In waiting for transportation he too became chilled which affected him acutely and when he reached the shelter of the hotel he was shaken with distress and discomfort. A severe cold ensued which for the first time in the history of our association together prevented him from attending the sessions of conference and assisting me, as was his wont. The conference proved to be a very important one. An attack had been made upon a position I had taken as President of the High Council. In an article published in the Herald, the delegation from Lamoni precipitated the matter upon the conference floor, which involved a series of discussions that grew decidedly acrimonious, it was necessary for me to exercise a great deal of forbearance. Since I was deprived of my counsellor's assistance in order to take part in the discussion and defend my position, I was obliged to call, by the will of the Assembly, upon others to preside while the debates were in progress. The record of the minutes will show who these men were, who were thus called to preside, but memory seems to indicate they were Heman C. Smith and Frederick G. Pitt. The question sprung up was upon an interpretation of the 14th paragraph of section 99 of the Doctrine and Covenants, which makes provision for the priesthood. Sorry, I will say that again. Which makes provision for the president of the High Council to examine cases which have been appealed to that court and his right to determine whether or not the appellants are entitled to a rehearing. It is unnecessary here to urge the merits of various points in this controversy, but is sufficient to state that at its conclusion, my construction of the passage and my position and action in connection with it was sustained by the Church. In some other respects, the conference of this year was remarkable and important as compared with others which had been held. It will be my province if I am so permitted to present a chapter on Revelation in these memoirs, which may call the attention of my readers to some things which occurred at this session. The next heading, A Comrade Falls at the Post of Duty. Brother Blair had been obliged to keep closely to the house throughout the conference and towards its close was still unquestionably ill. He finally concluded it would be better for him to go home than to remain longer in the East. So he made ready for the trip, which involved first a drive to Willoughby in order to take a train on the Lakeshore Railroad, 
The morning proved to be cold and rainy and feeling overshadowed with a presentiment of disaster, I tried to induce him to postpone his departure a day or two. Brother, brethren W. H. Kelly and E. L. Kelly joined me in trying to persuade him not to undertake the trip, for since he would likely be alone from Chicago on west, we felt it would be hazardous. Brother W. H. Kelly was especially urgent in objecting to his attempting it, but we could not move him from his intention and finally saw him depart with others of a little band, all the while burdened with a strong sense of harm to come. He reached Chicago safely and after a wait entrained for home all alone. Fortunately at Burlington, my son-in-law Francis M. Weld happened to discover him on the train and perceiving his serious condition stayed right with him doing all he could to, receive, to relieve his suffering. Alarmed at seeing that he was failing rapidly, Brother Weld telegraphed for his physician, whose services, however, seemed to avail little. And before the train reached Chariton, the spirit of Brother W. W. Blair passed from its earthly tenement. In response to other telegrams, some brethren came on Chariton to help my son-in-law, and every care and provision was taken that was necessary and possible. The saddened group finally reached Lamoni and the home and family of the deceased. I may note in passing that when his wife's sister, Elizabeth Blair, received the telegram announcing his death, she was not overcome as might have happened, had not she also been given a spiritual admonition that he would soon be called from her side. All my young life, and even since approaching my majority, I had been a hero lover. I will not say I have been a hero worshipper, but I have always greatly admired the heroes of this life. To me, one of the grandest deaths possible for a man is to be called away at his post of duty, as he was faithfully discharging, according to his capacity, all the various obligations which devolved upon him as a member of society. According to his condition and ability, all the duties which had been placed upon Brother Blair by reason of the important place he held in society and in the official ranks of the church, I believe he had faithfully performed and he had practically, if not technically, died at his post. Thus to me his passing seemed in a measure glorious indeed. To trace the incidents which led up to that death, his standing exposed in the storm while waiting for the streetcar in the darkness and cold of a night with temperature greatly below that of the heated train from which he had just emerged with clothing insufficient in weight and amount to protect him from the wind and snows might start a train of reasoning which would lay the blame for the approach of death at the door of human carelessness this procedure might do in a sense for the mere Causest, but to me, as I have often pondered over the many related circumstances, thinking upon the life of my busy associate, reviewing my acquaintance of his early and late ministrations, it has seemed I could not divest myself of the feeling, legitimate or otherwise, I know not, that his being taken away was not without divine permission and sanction. He had about attained unto the three score and ten years of man's allotted life, he had reached one of the highest positions within the powers of his religious associates to confer. 
in the which he had proved himself faithful and responsible, and he had stood thus upon the heights possible to his ability and activity in service with powers yet unbroken and consecration unwavering. I could but feel that, like other heroes who had fallen at their post of duty, he had been taken when his record was bright and untarnished, when to have continued longer, especially in the particular course of work to which he had assigned himself, might have resulted in a waning of his powers of mind and body, and have brought disaster and a loss of prestige, influence and position upon him. Thus, in a sense, I felt that it was the master who had permitted his withdrawal from the activities of this life, while yet its honours were ripe upon him. I honoured, I loved him, but I was not alone in this, for many men loved and honoured him also. The great majority of his associates respected him and his opinions, and even those who strongly opposed some of his ideas and definitely differed from him in conclusions, withheld not their needs, withheld not their meed of regard and honour for his integrity as a man and a religious co-labourer. His picture hangs upon my wall where all who enter my house may see that it holds an honoured place there. The place he has held in my affection has never been occupied by another. However may, much I may and do esteem others, William Wallace Blair holds his place in my love and tender regard. Next heading, Routine Labours. Next heading, Routine Labours. The weeks of the spring and summer following this bereavement and loss of my associate passed in usual routine. By invitation of the missionary in charge and local authorities, which included Bishop Charles J. Hunt, I made a trip to Auburn, Sac County, Iowa, to attend and participate in the dedication of a chapel built there by the members of the Camp Creek branch some forty in number. I was the house guest of Brother W. A. Carroll, though Brother Skinner and others also entertained me. Alexander H. Smith, C. E. Butterworth and J. F. McDowell were associated with me in this dedication, which occurred on June 7th. A further account of this service was printed in the Herald of the period to which interested readers may be referred. By invitation from a citizen's committee at Seymour, Iowa, I attended an old folks reunion there on August the 30th, where I was billed to deliver the principal address. For this invitation, I was indebted to the influence of Dr. Danoon, formerly of Lamoni. While I had not the highest opinion of this man's qualities as a citizen or physician, I had evidently made an impression upon him during his residence at Lamoni which he had carried away with him, and when this reunion was planned, he had used his influence to have me placed on the programme. He took special pains to meet me, to be in attendance upon me, to introduce me to the committee and various citizens, and in every possible way to see that I was courteously treated and comfortably cared for during my stay. Among those I met thus, I recall Reverend King, a Presbyterian, he was very pleasant and cordial, and seemed to enjoy showing me attention and courtesy. He was small in stature, but of broad tolerance, extremely affable, and quite willing that others should believe as they might see fit, though he had no very great liking for those who chose to exhibit warlike denunciations from the pulpit. 
By his invitation, I addressed his congregation in their church one evening. I chose for my text the opening portion of the 14th chapter of John, particularly the words of the Master, in my house, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place, etc. From this, I presented the idea that Christ came and instituted his church as a preparatory work to that which he would do after his ascension, when he was to prepare a place for those who would hear and obey his philosophy here on earth. The service was well attended and I received some very commendatory tributes touching the content and manner of the arguments presented. Altogether, the episode of this visit to Seymour proved a very pleasant one, and my respect for Dr. D. Noon was increased to a marked degree, as I noted, with grateful thanks that he had straightened up considerably from his drinking habits, and at least while I was there was sober and apparently a man of influence in the community. What impression I was able to make upon the old folks in my address to them is not easy to, de to determine. They were a quiet, orderly and attentive audience. In marked contrast to the one I addressed at Dicature City a while before. Kindly committees entertained me. I received the appreciative thanks of many. My expenses were generously paid and I went my way rejoicing next day, taking home with me a number of happy and comfortable memories of the meeting. Next heading, Another Builder Falls. Since my removal from Plano to Lamoni, one of the inmates of my family had been Thomas Jacobs, the carpenter who built my home, Liberty Hall. He was the same contractor who had also built the church, the old east side and west side schoolhouses, the first home of the state savings bank and a number of other good and serviceable buildings in Lamoni. I believe that in the bank project he had had associated with him a Mr Stark from Kansas. This gentleman claimed to be a lineal descendant of Colonel Stark of Ticonderoga fame when there had been demanded the surrender of that fort in the name of God and the Continental Congress etc. Mr Jacobs was Irish but anti-Catholic favouring the cause of the orange men. He was an omnivorous reader was well posted on English history and current events of all sorts. He was a single man, extremely honest in money. Matters, but given to the weakness of drink. However, when in his cups, he would never attempt to work at his trade, simply giving himself up entirely to a spree. When it was over, he would again settle down to his labour intelligently and expertly. When the brick church was in process of erection, an architect from Council Bluffs by the name of P.H. Wind, in passing through Lamoni, took occasion to examine the building and freely criticised the character of the roof which Mr. Jacobs was putting on. The building was 50 by 80 feet, with a vestibule of 10 feet, and the roof was made of one span across the whole area. Mr. Jacobs had made his calculations as to support on the strength and shape of the rafters, the Council Bluffs expert denounced the method as being very dangerous and predicted that it would make the building a death trap. However, right or wrong in construction, the building with its broad arching roof was still standing when in that fall of 1896 we carried from it the worn-out body of its builder, Thomas Jacobs. Upon my arrival home from the trip to Seymour, I found the old gentleman quite ill and on the next day he died. 
from indigestion resulting from his excessive use of liquor. We buried him under the auspices of our, of our own faith, the services being held in the church which he had planned and erected, and the sermon preached from a pulpit of unique design and construction, the work of his hands, his earlier trade, having been that of a cabinet maker. I offered remarks in tribute to the man, feeling held thereto by a promise I had once made to him, that while living he should have a home with us, and when he had passed on I would see that a proper service should mark his burial. We laid him in Rose Hill Cemetery on September the 1st, where many other inhabitants of the little hamlet proceeded or have followed him. The buildings he erected still stand as monuments of his honesty, thoroughness and skill as a workman, and there has been no loss of life from any collapse of the brick church. The prognostications of the critical and educated contractor to the contrary notwithstanding, it still stands intact, is serving the measure of its creation, and will probably do so until after many others are laid away to rest in quiet, peaceful Rose Hill Garden. I'm going to leave that there and carry on in another episode. Thank you for listening.